yeah, just a story of Rihanna would be an awesome place to start. Um, sure. So um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Renewum, which is a regenerative finance or in the non-blockchain terms called a climate finance ecosystem. And we are here to fund the energy transition, so renewable energy development around the world. And we do this with an instrument which we call the Renew Record. It's like a green label, if you think of kind of a fair trade label equivalent for the green economy. So unpacking that a bit, we you know use a crowdfunding type mechanism uh, to subsidize renewable energy and generate new renewable developments, which support climate action for companies and, and individuals worldwide. Uh, prior to Renewum, I was an environmental commodities trader and in renewable energy investment financing. Um, and prior to that, I was in energy and you know capital markets trading. So, you know, my whole career has really been on the finance side of of business, but really coming from a, a belief of how we can, you know, use technology and finance for good. So, you know, I started my kind of thought around this 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 uh, this idea of using tech and finance for good when I was in undergrad. I studied behavioral economics in school and happened to be in my climate, or what was it called, economic crises class, the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. So I was literally studying kind of the collapse of finance <laughs> um, as I was in this, uh, in this real world economic crisis. And it really kind of connected the dots to me of, you know, what were the challenges with the big picture of kind of capitalism and our economic models and the systems at play there that we need to consider when we are kind of building, you know, long-term solutions. And so that got me really thinking about things like perverse incentives, multipolar traps, coordination failures, all these things that anybody who's um, working in climate really needs to think about because at the end of the day, the, the climate problem that we're facing, the way I believe it at least, is symptomatic of a bigger, a bigger mechanism at play, which is, you know, the capital model, capitalist model. And, um, you know, I've been really kind of geeking out on solutions to some of the problems that we're facing now and got really excited when I discovered Web3 and the potential for the building blocks and the token uh, economies that can be designed programmatically with Web3 and blockchain uh, incentive vehicles. So um, we built Renewum, kind of marrying our real world expertise in finance and energy systems and development with a big kind of picture long-termist view of how do you create uh, feedback loops and positive incentives for people and companies to naturally want to do the right thing rather than have to do something that's good for the world at their own expense. So I can kind of dig into some of those in more detail, but um, that's a little bit about where my, my brain works. I, I like it. And, you know, you said something there, how can we use, um, you know, finance and tech to go do good for the world? Um, I think that's a, a good question. My, my, my question back to you would be like, can we? Do you, do you think we actually can? Do you think the, the underlying premise is not also an important part of that, of that equation? Like the premise of how the paradigm in which we're operating? Because that's kind of what I heard you say when you talked about capitalism at large. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how we define capitalism, quite frankly. So, you know, classical economics, um, and if you think of classical um, market-based economies, you know, they're predicated upon the, the idea that the market will price 
goods and services according to the demand, the supply and the demand. And the idea behind that really, which is actually quite brilliant, is basically that whatever people need will be produced and th there'll be an equilibrium met at all, at all costs. And there'll always be someone to fill in a void. Now that idea makes a lot of sense. And I think all classical economists would agree with that, except for the fact that we have these these ideas in in current um, you know capitalism and and economics like lobbying, for example, which allow for corporate vested interests to develop their own their own laws and regulations and and you know anything that supports their own vested interest, which actually prohibits a true market economy from really really being developed and establishing. So what happens is rules are written in favor of certain big money players. And that really prohibits anything like a true market economy from existing. So what happens is um, capital owners end up accruing more capital. And uh, we don't really have any checks and balance to prevent that. So it increases polarization, increases deleterious effects like, you know, anti-regenerative practices and, um, you know, transitioning everything, every natural system into something that can be economically valued. So, you know, cutting exactly. down trees, for example, uh, turning that's those what, into That's kind of what I force. was asking, right? Because like the underlying premise of like, as long as nature is a thing that we fit into capitalism, I think we, we're going to, we're going to iterate around green ideas or regenerative ideas, but nothing might actually change because we have these, you know, government interests, we have these corporate interests, we have these lobby interests, as you just explained. And then also we, we're treating nature as a thing rather than understanding fundamentally that nature is part of us, is sacred and has a value that's beyond a monetary value. And I'm just curious because I, I, I know you have a, a, a really powerful way to connect these worlds, how you how you see them connect and how you see them connect also in what, you know, I would call the, the regenerative movement, or as you said, like Renewum is here to fund that kind of movement, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about um, our current market systems, so every dollar that transactions in the world has something, you know, something like a hundred trillion dollars a day has environmental externalities. But right now in our market system, the social and ecological impacts of that economic activity have been pretty much disqualified from our market pricing system, which basically means that the market or the buyers and sellers aren't paying the true price or the true cost for the end-to-end -end creation of products. If you think of the cost of energy alone, which you know we've we've it's come to light in the last couple of of months through the Ukraine war, um, you know if we really paid the true price for extracting oil and gas, for example, and that means both the actual mining of it and extraction, and, and as well as the the cleanup on the on the backside of it, most of the products that we have in the world actually wouldn't be economically feasible. We just, they wouldn't be a market for them, right? And so what I propose with the kind of a revision of capitalism, or maybe I'll say like an upgrade to capitalism, would be to, to establish a true market price system. So one of the ways that I think we, we need to counteract the, the problems we have right now is to ideally abolish um, subsidies and, and lobbying rights for certain behaviors that are deleterious to the environment. Now, that's a really difficult thing to do and not very popular for any of the politicians whose pockets get lined presently with, uh, with you know, lobbying interests. Um, 
But what we can do, on, you know, kind of to counter that is to properly subsidize the positive uh, economic activities, so the, the climate positive um, solutions, and we can um, give nature a place on the balance sheet. So right now, nature doesn't have, I mean, I don't know this is all kind of talking about a lot about economics rather than maybe the philosophical, so social, cultural, anthropological side of things, which I think is a very valid argument. We have to maybe talk about that as well. But just speaking in pure dollars and cents, because that's what most people who work in the market, you know, understand. Um, if or at least come had... back to, right? Because otherwise, otherwise, often the conversation is, this is beautiful philosophy, or this is in heartfelt, like when I'm barefoot in Costa Rica with you on a, sharing a drink, I, I agree, but then there's like back to reality. And this is how markets work. And so kind of to bridge those two worlds, I think is not an unimportant step in the equation. And so I, I, I get that you would bring it back to that equation right away. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you just, you can't, I don't know, to paraphrase Buckminster Fuller, you know, you have to disrupt a system from within and make a new solution superior to the existing models. You can't expect to, to blow up something from the outside and, and bring everybody who's benefiting it from that current model along with you. They're just not going to be interested. So you really have to, I believe, yeah. kind of speak the language of the people who are currently benefiting. And, you know, some things that I think are really interesting to, to think about when you're talking about the climate problem in general and how you communicate solutions to particularly capitalists is really from, you know, what matters to them. And what matters to them is their long-term economic viability. So that means they need customers. It means they need products and inputs in order to produce something that someone's going to purchase in the long term. Now, if you're talking about things like any physical product, actually any anything that the market uses, because we need energy to produce everything, um, converting natural resources into energy or into um, you know mining, converting anything that's mined basically into anything that we consume. Ultimately, there is a what's called a planetary boundary that you will come up upon, which is there are finite limitations to the energy, the the hydrocarbon stored in our planet, and there is a finite limitation to the the minerals and kind of you know, rare earths that also um, we need to extract in order to produce energy. And so, at the end of the day, uh, when you're talking to you know a business owner who's looking for a global supply chain. Um, Talking to them about the fact that there are finite resources at play gives them an understanding that there is the the, the costs. What's called the energy return on investment the the amount that you can that you can um, generate from the amount that you put in in terms of energy um, is diminishing year over year. That means it's going to cost them more to extract more, and that means that that's going to that cost is going to be affecting their bottom line. So eventually we're going to run up against a problem where we genuinely need to reconsider how we price and go back to that kind of true market economy idea that I was mentioning earlier, where, um, again, you know, nature actually does get priced into the costs of producing anything, any good or service. And this is the, I think this is really one of the only ways that we're going to be able to rebalance our economy so that this sort of perpetual growth machine that keeps sort of eating itself um, will end up sort of tapering off and not not continuing to go exponential. So that's, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I, I think that's one of the things we should really consider. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I love the eloquence with which you can, can share about it. I think there is 
there's a total truth to this idea and this concept of true cost. And I think at the very bottom line that it doesn't exist right now, right? I think in terms of um, developing so, something like a true measure of cost, my question would be like, how do we actually measure the value of, you know, a life form that is, you know, in, in, in let's just call it like an old paradigm view or a mainstream view or like a, a reductionist scientific view, I think, you know, it's, it's about reductionism versus, you know, like a life-based kind of philosophy. So as we're moving away from this reductionist worldview, how do we actually measure complex ecosystems that are alive, you know, that we, we barely are starting to understand? Yeah, that's... I think the philosophy and the principles behind this are much easier to grasp than than that answer, um, because the reality is it's very complex. I mean, if you think about something like, um, I think I think in in California they reintroduced wolves into the food chain a couple of years ago, and they saw that everything from you know small species all the way down to the the quality of the water in the streams were affected, because when you adjust something in a system, even if it's just one tiny thing, everything else that's related to that system is 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 uh, affected. And so to quantify, to really measure with, you know, proper calculus, uh, how much, you know, an elephant is worth to the savanna or how much a tree is worth to the Amazon is a really complicated answer. Um, the best we have so far that I've seen at least would be a combination of, you know, different types of IOT devices. So we can use satellite imagery, you can use thermal uh, monitoring systems, you can, um, uh, you can use obviously blockchain and, and AI and machine learning to quantify some of this stuff. It's very difficult though, to really get to the, the social and the, the community and the cultural impacts because you know, going back to, again, classical economics, we never really had a place for animals, plants, uh, often women <laughs> um, at the, at, in the household activities, children, you know, at the elderly. They're not, none of these things are considered sort of productive inputs to the economy historically. And, you know, we have to really reimagine how we can do that now. So um I guess the long the long story short is it's a very complicated ask, and I think we're just at the beginning of that. There's some some really cool projects starting to quantify what you call nature based solutions um, in the regenerative finance world. So, looking at how to um, value mostly tree canopies and uh, mangroves and different kinds of uh, of tree species to um, basically pay local communities to protect them because the belief is that these are going to be more valuable in the ground than they are as two by fours, you know, being transferred across the world. That, that's and, the definite, the definite answer, right? Like a, same in British Columbia, where I spend a lot of time in the year and you see these, this old growth forest that is, you know, just, it's really not about the one tree and what that one tree would be worth as a two by four or four by four. It's about the ecosystem that that tree is connected to. And the, the, the information, not just even the carbon, but the information that it's connected to in, in the soil. So I love, I love that example. Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, soil is one of the most fascinating, um, you know, things we have, I think, on the planet in terms of its potential to nourish our bodies and our minds to, you know, act as a carbon sink, um, to support animals and, and, uh, and, and plant species. I mean, it's, it's really critical and we're just destroying it because 
uh, of kind of modern agriculture wisdom i guess um and uh and it's really it's it's really I, I don't know if we can call it wisdom that's for uh, yeah sure. that's, it's more I like a, that a, a destruction op, destruction operating system here's yeah, something i want to throw throw in into the mix of what you're already sharing with it which i think is beautiful direction of this conversation so we recently had uh, charles eisenstein back on the podcast and he um, i read a, a little Substack article from him where he di differentiated between natural capital social capital cultural capital and then spiritual capital right and i think these elements are really hard to put into words for someone who's still living in a paradigm that is a reductionist paradigm where everything's a thing world's a machine right the earth is a thing right so again i think the underlying paradigm for me is always step one and as long as we believe that's the way the world around us happens i think it's really difficult to even go into the place of defining kind of uh, value to these natural, social, cultural, and spiritual aspects of reality. I love where we're going with it so far, but I'm curious how you how you would relate to those, even just these four buckets that I just um, shared with you. I mean, I've read, uh, I've read his book, uh, Sacred Economics, which has actually informed a, a good amount of my thinking. Um, and... You know, I think that the way that he he proposes those different types of capital is is not uh, unfamiliar to me, but is not something that a lot of people who've been I want to say kind of co opted or brainwashed um, by the uh, the economic uh, propaganda that we have in in current you know culture. Uh, it, it's really it's a really um, novel conversation for a lot of people i mean other probably barring uh indigenous wisdom and maybe some eastern philosophy you know certainly the buddhist traditions and so forth barring those those individuals the rest of at least the western world is is pretty much divorced from anything around spirituality i mean maybe with there's a maybe a spiritual uh resurgence or renaissance happening right now but Generally, I would say we're pretty divorced from our connection to spirit, to nature, to each other, you know, community. Um, and that is, I really want to blame economics for that, actually. <laughs> as, as much as I keep saying that, I, I think, um, you know, what happened really was in the 50s, this is at least my view, in the 50s, um, when there was kind of a war between communism and capitalism, the, the metric of GDP... Um, gross domestic product became sort of the paramount value that proved capitalism to be the the winning philosophy. Um, and the idea really is that infinite growth uh, measured in GDP, which is is basically the amount of produced and sold in an economy, um, is equal to the goodness of society. And so when that whole that whole kind of propaganda machine developed uh in the 50s through kind of early 70s growthism you know kind of dictated success or became identified as success and everything suddenly became commodified you know it was nothing has nothing has utility or has value in society under that paradigm if it doesn't produce an, a monetary reward gdp and and that is um, you know, the more time I have personally spent with, you know, indigenous tribes living in nature, um, kind of getting back to kind of spiritual groundedness, the more I am convinced that that is 
is so um it's it's just it's just not sufficient for a human experience it's you know it's it's really shallow it's a really shallow way of thinking about about I would even throw in there Brianna I totally like double tap on what you're saying but I would even throw in there it might even only lead to self-destruction because there's like not really another direction where this can go over more than 50 100 150 200 years like you know there Sure, maybe in this reductionist, uh, you know, paradigm of technology will save us. One day you could theoretically upload your consciousness into a disk, but then what's that worth if you have to leave the planet to beam that to another planet? <laughs> like that's all just like such sci-fi BS to me personally. And I feel like we got to be very real that that direction, if everything is reduced to GDP or nothing or GDP producing units, is well for one reductionist, but two it it only can lead to self-destruction. It can't lead to more life or reverence of life or enjoyment of life or experience of life. And so that's, I feel like, I don't know if you'd agree, but I, I feel like it's becoming more and more visible that for many of us, this, this, this intelligence um, in our hearts is somehow like, you know, switched on and wanting to find solutions in the grounded, real, you know, real world, in the business world, in the economical world, and in the way we do commerce and the way we trade between what we currently call countries, but 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 ultimately comes from a notion in our spirituality or our hearts that realizes, wow, this planet is sacred and our relationships to this planet matter. And if it's not modeled under that kind of paradigm, then like, what's what's it worth trading for or doing it for in the first place? Could not agree more. Um, I, I hope that that um, philosophy, that that view, um, continues to be further, um, you know, entrenched in society. I, I think you know, in the kind of the '60s, um, you know, summer of love type. Um, time there there was a lot of this kind of this narrative happening a lot of spirituality a lot of a lot of the conversations about what's you know what's bigger than us what does this matter for why are we doing all this what's the point of life you know and and i i really hope that we can move in that direction because you know i i'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the the ancient chinese myth um the monster called tao tai he's um it was a it, it's a fable about a, a um, this monster that ate itself, basically, you know, possessive, like of an insatiable appetite. He consumed everything around himself, including eventually his own body and arms and torso, leaving nothing but his head. And so this is sort of the, you know, analogy to what the growth imperative and, and the, just the financing of everything, uh, or financializing of everything is doing to our planet and to our, ourselves. And, and that's, you know, to your point, it's, it's not just our physiological experience, you know, our, our natural systems, but also our, I think our, our spiritual and our community um, as well. And, you know, you see this really kind of acutely, I think, in the things like the social media crisis, um, you know, what, what happened with Facebook, for example, I think is a brilliant example of, you know, optimizing for eyeballs on screen to optimize for revenue and, and ad dollars, you know, at the expense of the fabric of our society of our culture of our the richness of our of our communing and the way we and the well-being the mental health the spiritual health ever the well-being of everybody and it was it was really there's no checks and balances there because 
the only responsibility Facebook has is to their shareholders officially. You know, they have a legal fiduciary duty to actually do that. So, um, you know, devastatingly, I've actually read of a couple of companies recently who have been trying to focus on long-term values, um, which doesn't just apply to climate solutions. It's, it's actually on a bigger kind of social and, and cultural perspective as well. And they've been sued by their shareholders for, you know, breaching fiduciary responsibility, which is terrifying to me. The fact that, you know, BlackRock as an investment fund ESG manager or uh, investment manager has now had a, a sizable amount of its funds, uh, its LP funds, um, withdrawn mostly from Texan funds, uh, sovereign um, pension funds and endowments in Texas have had those funds withdrawn because they're boycotting fossil fuels. I mean, that's that's like the most, um, I think, just terrifying example of a conflict of values versus, you know, economic objectives. And so um, I really hope that we can we can almost retreat to our you know, our original human values, which are, you know, we are, we are by definition herd animals, right? We are, we are communing species. And the more we become decoupled and uh, disconnected from each other and from nature, which is, you know, our source, I just think the, the worse off we're all going to be, you know, we have a burgeoning mental health crisis, which is, you know, only getting more and more acute, I think. So, you that doesn't come from from nowhere that's that there's a very clear track i think i love where where we've already the ground we've already covered in this episode and the things you're sharing and you know again the eloquence with which you're sharing them i'd love to know more about you and share a little bit more about like your journey as we're kind of you know in the midst of this so i remember you telling me that you left home very early uh, and went to live in beijing um i'm really curious you know, what kind of stations or, or, or spots along the journey happened for this like intercultural kind of global view, but then also like that spiritual insight and, you know, take us on a bit of a, a journey if you want there to just uh, explain to people like, you know, I, I also think it, it's good to normalize a certain amount of spirituality on our personal journeys to remember that even when we meet in business rooms, that this actually should inform all of us that we are you know, um, we do already reverence uh, the planet and, and, and have like an experience that got us there rather than saying, well, now back to business as normal. Let's stop the podcast philosophical conversation. Um, yeah. So my life journey has been um, atypical in just about every way. I went to Beijing when I was 13 on an exchange and sort of never went back to regular life after that. Um, I ended up doing boarding school in Europe and then, um, you know, in the last 20 years or so, I've lived in 12 countries on all six continents. So, um, really I would say a very internationally minded, you know, life exposure. Um, but I would say what really kind of connected the dots for me, you know, beyond just the traveling and the learning of other cultures and assimilating to different, um, you know, ways of living, I think was, was really my first, um, burning man, which I know is really cliche to say, <laughs> but, uh, I was, and I'm not sure if this is kosher to talk about online, but I was, uh, I was offered, I was, I mean, I think as, as, uh, 
as a psychedelic renaissance is, is happening right now, I feel like this is more normalized, but um, I was given uh, five MEO DMT about 10 years ago at Burning Man for the first time. And um, that moment, I think, profoundly changed the direction of my life. Um, it was almost like a, a butterfly effect moment. And it was like I could finally, for the first time, uh, cross the barriers, the, con the, the conventional um, constraints that I had been sort of, you know, acculturated into, um, which I grew up in a very kind of traditional Western culture, which is, you know, again, kind of, you know, do these things, follow the corporate ladder and you'll be successful. And that's kind of the end of the day. And, um, and it was very programmatic and very prescribed. And, and I just, I kind of intuitively always felt that I didn't really connect to any of the values that I had been taught or I had been surrounding me for most of my life. I never really identified with very much of my peer group, but this moment was like that time that I, I felt, okay, I get the bigger picture. Um, 5-MAO DMT for those who are, um, not familiar is a, is a psychoactive compound, which actually a component of it is actually developed within your body or all natural species have it when you're born and when you die is when it's released in your system. So it is sort of a natural thing. Um, but it, it really acts, helps you to access what I would say, like a connection to source, whatever you believe that might be, but it, it's basically a way for you to feel all the things that are bigger than you and outside of you. And, and suddenly I just felt like, okay, there's something way bigger than this you know, make money and, and have kids and, you know, do the whole thing, this whole program that we're taught, this, this life song and dance. I just felt there was something much bigger. And from there on after I started to do, or kind of sought out spiritual teachers, you know, studied Buddhism a little bit. I went and spent um, four months backpacking India and, you know, sat at some ashrams and did a couple of Vipassanas and sort of really like, um, became quite deliberate in my intention to understand myself and, you know, a, a value system, which felt like it connected to me. And that was, um, you know, obviously a huge privilege. That was just a, an accident that that all happened, but it, it really set me on a path of like, of asking why. And I would say from then I never really, I, I don't really take a lot of things for at face value anymore as a result of that. Um, when I'm, when I'm told to do something or when I'm told, you know, by the media or by our, our society, government, whoever, that something is true, I, it almost prompts me to say, okay, but why, you know, why is that true? You know, what's, what's behind the curtain here? What, who are the, who are the marionettists, you know, pulling the strings and, and what's, what's the really, what's the objective? And, it helped me to establish my own independent value system, which makes me feel like um, seeking out other people who are on the same path. And mm. um, which naturally yeah, starts to happen, right? Once we yeah, go down those rabbit holes, it's just, I think you, you said just, it like there's this prescription reality, and you know we're not we're not like disrespecting that way of living if someone's living this way. But once the veil kind of lifts, it's like now I gotta kind of question everything and also be skeptical as you said when messages are just like take it for face value this is the right way to follow it's like well well no thanks actually right and so like let's let's do think for ourselves and actually this is one of the five agreements in uh, Don Miguel Ruiz's uh, five agreements formerly the four agreements now the five agreements 
uh, is be skeptical, right? And um, and learn to listen. And and so maybe even maybe if you were to rewrite it, like learn to listen also to yourself. Um, oh yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing is, I mean, I, I can. This is more of a personal anecdote, but I really, or what I alluded to is, I really felt alone for most of my childhood and my early kind of formative years because I just felt I didn't connect to anything that was being told I should care about and I knew that but I didn't have any um, identification with anything that was beyond what I was taught and I feel there's so many people who have that life experience actually since I've gone through this this journey myself you know I've really um I've been surprised and pleasant, pleasantly surprised to see how many people have approached me asking for advice and wisdom and resources and how do we do that self-investigative um, audit almost <laughs> uh, that that you know puts you on a path of kind of the self-inquiry and and compassionate um, curiosity. You know why am I like this? Why is the world like this? Why are you like this? And one of the things I think is really important to understand in that process is kind of that the traumas of kind of the human experience that inform our behavior. Um, and when you start to get a grasp on on that kind of trauma psychology and, and behavioral psychology aligned to spiritual and community wisdom is for me, it was like the aha moment. It just everything kind of made sense. All the pieces went together because I started to realize, okay, I'm actually not that broken. I just had a bunch of, you know, shitty things happen to me. And here's how I, here was the, the, the way I adapted. And now that I know this, and there's a light that's been shed on it, um, here's what I can do about it. And you get this sort of empowered feeling of agency that I think a lot of people live their lives without because they just don't have awareness that there's an opportunity to change some of these things. So I'd, lo I'd love to add something there, Brianna. Before, yeah, don't go forget ahead. where you're about to go. When you're speaking about this powerful feeling of agency, earlier you were speaking about the '60s generation and like the you know, the hippie revolution, right? Like lots of spirituality and flowing, age of Aquarius on the horizon, but then really not a lot of it was kind of sticking um, over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. At least not all of it, or lots of it kind of got lost in the trenches of what we called earlier, like the reductionist kind of GDP centric world world paradigm, right? And I think this is where a huge difference is to the time we live in. And like, you know, this is early 2023 as we're having this conversation, that it's not about just having a spiritual experience or traveling into an astral projection or taking the psychoactive compound, you know, and when you do that, do that with care and inform yourself and with the right people. But it's really about, I believe, descending, not ascending, descending that spiritual energy into the body, living it, and understanding that there's agency when you're living it through the body, like as you just said. And then with that agency comes, you know, uh, great power, great responsibility kind of uh, point of view is like, so, so now what? What are we going to do with it? What kind of planet Earth are we co-creating now that we've unsubscribed from the matrix prescription? Now that we felt how spiritual of a journey this really is, now what, right? Like that's just kind of the entry gate to the co-creative process rather than like, oh my God, let me tell you about my incredible journey last weekend and the weekend before and the weekend before and the weekend before, right? So that it's because it's not yes. really a, a, a permanent place. And also one of the reasons I have you on the show, I find like you you really have a clear direction with that agency. 
Well, I think, I mean, you just made a brilliant point that I really want more people to understand. And I think that with this new um, psychedelic renaissance that's kind of burgeoning at the moment, the fear I have around this is, uh, you know, the term spiritual bypassing comes to mind, which is really, you know, you kind of do the practices, you know, you do the breath work and you do the ayahuasca and you do all the things, but if you don't integrate it and you don't really use those as tools or catalysts to go inside yourself and understand your own behaviors, your own um, personal handicaps that can be then transformed or transmuted into potentially really powerful, you know, sources of agency, um, you know, you don't, you're kind of limiting yourself, first of all, and what the, what the upside, you know, the real potential is, but you're also not really doing a justice to, to anybody because, you know, it's great to seek out the peak life experiences and the highs are awesome, but it's actually in the lows, I think, in the really tormenting, traumatic excavating of like, you know, we call it soul archaeology, like really going deep into like the shit that you've experienced and feeling all the feels to unpack it so that you can then develop your own framework for, you know, a, a true healing that allows you to basically become this, this, um, you know, source of, of truth and wisdom for others to come to as well. And to, to help to nourish and nurture a, a, a better plan for, you know, our planet and for our species. And, I don't know. I think, uh, frankly, until we have more enlightened leaders, whether company leaders or politicians or, you know, idols to worship, you know, right now we don't really have any or very many, I'll say, like enlightened or grounded or integrated, um, you know, leaders. You know, we just don't have a lot of those people to look up to. And I, I hope that we can, you know, we can develop a lot more of that in the next, you know, this next decade. Um but I think we need we need some guidance as a society in that direction. Otherwise, we're we're just going to continue to tear each other and our, ourselves apart. And and that's uh, that's a fear that I have, and that I'm seeing when I look around at the state of you know particularly America, but um, but certainly the Western world and you know is is going through a crisis of conscience. I think, and we need um, we need new narratives uh, to follow, and a lot of that stuff you know, historically has been prescribed externally. If you think of stories that we followed collectively that have allowed for social cohesion, like originally religion, and then in the last century, you know, the American dream or the capitalist model, both of those two have sort of fallen um, prey to, you know, challenges, <laughs> I would say in their, in the stories. And, and they're not really being followed now. And so there's not really a, a single narrative that we're all agreeing to. We don't have a single a single direction we're all following. And I actually think that's kind of amazing because it gives us the opportunity to then look inside ourselves and to figure it out internally, which is where I think a lot of the indigenous indigenous cultures and traditions are really critical. And I, I you know I hope we can learn a lot from them because they I think they got a lot right. Many of them, not just anyone in particular. Yeah, I hold to that. I agree. I, I think this has become a big part of my journey as well, is to create spaces where people can step into those experiences, not because it's a prescriptive answer, not because you just got to have that experience to know the next step, but because it, it you know, kind of 
the opposite of as as of too many religious practices it puts you into a direct experience of spirituality under guidance of cultures that have done that for thousands of years who live a very humble coexistence with the planet earth but i also think well-being is defined in a way or other by participation you know participation with the lived environment you know it's like being in relationship with the lived environment and coming full circle here to like the measurements of um you know gdp based economics is like none of that is connected to the lived interplay of us and life and so in one way or other like i really love this conversation with you uh, for so many reasons but in one way or other we we will have to evolve those those um rules of the games that that we adhere by and you know in one way or other either because there's going to be a level of self-destruct in those groups or because we simply um become more mature than giving our authority away to authorities that want to play by those old rules we need to outlive out create those those old rules of the game because as we as we said in this episode a few times it will lead to a place that isn't actually worth living right and so I think there's something very interesting in the feeling experience of that for those of of you that followed us all the way into this rabbit hole is that many of us get this many of us feel this many of us can relate to this right and we might not know what to do next but I think everyone gets their individual instructions from the place of silence from nature from love from you know all kinds of um ways of connecting to this more uh or, or not more to to source you know i would call it that too um so yeah thank you so much brianna for your time for your wisdom for your work in the world is there anything else you want to share or like you know um shout out as we're as we're wrapping this this episode today um no it's just been it's been great to to be on and to have this conversation and i i really look forward to more um conversations and more people who are uh connecting the dots between our business lives and our kind of corporate agendas and our human spiritual existences and i I think the more that we couple those together and kind of humanize business the better off we're going to be in, in general 